What's up, Dylan? So, why don't you bring us up to speed on our historical trek to California? Well, we were trying to find out how California made its way from the pages of a medieval romance and onto maps. To do that, we've been following the career of Hernan Cortez and his followers who brought the word California from Iberia to North America. We've already covered how Cortez and his motley crew of conquistadors, including thousands of Tlaxcalans and other indigenous American allies, conquered Tenochtitlan, as well as Cortez's rebuilding the city as the nucleus of the colonial New Spain. We also talked a bit about Cortez's career after the conquest. We discussed the failure of Cortez's first Pacific venture and the arrival of Cortez's nemesis and arch-rival Nuno Beltran de Guzman. In the years following the conquest, Cortez's fortunes turned against him and he was briefly recalled to Spain. And in Spain, Cortez was able to spin events his way and returned to Mexico with a promotion, the Marquisat of Oaxaca. We'll take up around where we left off in the late 1530s. Cortez was ready to give the Southern Seas a second shot. What's the rush? You know, his first attempt was a bust, and he already, you know, received the title, uh, got a good chunk of land. He's going for a second attempt here. What's his motivation? A title and good chunk of land is expensive to maintain. I think that Cortez, among other things, was a shrewd individual and set on increasing his own wealth and influence as a sort of self-perpetuating engine. He's worked inside and outside of the system to accomplish these goals all his life. Now, what's really agitating Cortez once he returned to New Spain was that ever-present thorn in his side, Nuno Beltran de Guzman. Guzman's slavers and raiders had been creeping up the western coast of northern Mexico. In a letter written while on campaign in Michoacan, Guzman wrote, From thence, ten days further, I shall go to find the Amazons, which some say dwell in the sea, some in the arm of the sea, and that they are very rich, and accounted of the people for goddesses, and whiter than any woman. They use bows and arrows and shields, have great many towns. Nuno Beltran de Guzman, July 8th, 1530. Boom! <laughs> the, the larger-than-life legend of Calafia and her Californian Amazons, the women warriors. Uh, the, the story has, you know, kind of been tweaked a little here and there as it is moved from the conquistadors, uh, from the texts, and, and then projected onto the landscape that they, you know, hope to find. Instead of black warrior women, they're, they're now these porcelain white, whiter than any woman woman. In, instead of living in cliffsides with, with griffins, the women now live in towns, more like the civilizations encountered by the Spanish in central Mexico. And, you know, I really like this romantic, floral language, this arm of the sea. But they're still somewhere out there, beyond the horizon. And did Guzman ever find his Amazons? Not at all. 
But not for lack of trying. Guzman was the scourge of Jalisco, burner of villages. He doomed tens of thousands to lives of slavery. For all of his rampaging through the northern frontier, he did not cross paths with Amazons. But the rumors persisted. In 1532, Cortes, back in Mexico, reinvigorated by his visit to Spain, wasted no time in outfitting a second voyage of exploration to chart the southern sea. For this mission, he recruited another extended family member and- Wait, 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 he gets another relative? What is the talent pool very limited here? Who's the boob? It is a huge investment just to get from Spain across the Atlantic to the Americas. But if you have a rich relation offering a job, that changes things. Cortez's rube is a cousin, Diego Hurtado de Mendoza. Mendoza would lead two ships, the San Marcos and the San Miguel, which had been built at Cortez's own expense. Now, in order to build and launch ships in the first place, Cortez actually had to create a port and shipyards at Acapulco, which was originally a Mixtec settlement on the Pacific coast. Huge effort went into setting up this shipyard. Prefabricated parts like windows, rigging, massive anchors, all of it had to be carried by porters from the Atlantic coast over the mountains and down to Acapulco. There were numerous delays. I could, you know, picture in my mind's eye Cortez he's like pulling his hair out in frustration, waiting years and facing delay after delay, trying to keep one step ahead of Guzman. Sailing west and accessing the markets and wealth of East Asia, that had been Cortez's plan for the past 10 years now. You know that uh, come hell or high water, Cortez is going to go for it. So Diego Hurtado is in charge. Uh, what's his game plan? Well, his instructions were to proceed northwest and pretty much probe around in the name of Spain. But right from the get-go, Mendoza's progress is frustrated by the most hated man in New Spain, Nuno Beltran de Guzman. of San Blas, agents of Guzman refused the ships of Hurtado entry and prevented Hurtado's crew from taking on fresh water. Oh, this is bad right from the start. I mean, they've, they've barely left port and they're already having supply problems. The competition between these two, you know, Cortez and Guzman, it's so petty. And they're both jerks. Mendoza's ship sailed northwards anyways without their ideal amount of supplies. They hugged the coast, but never set out west. Deep in the uncharted regions of the Gulf, something happened which caused only one of the two ships to be ever heard from again. And it was not Mendoza's. What was it? A storm? A disagreement. <laughs> no, best case scenario, there was a disagreement. <laughs> now you can imagine how this might start. Already the crew doesn't think that they have enough water. Ah, mutiny. Ah, the ship splits. The one ship we hear from made for New Spain, but wrecked near what is now Puerto Vallarta. Of whatever number survived that shipwreck, only three Spaniards survived a subsequent attack by local peoples. And these people had an ample motivation to attack the Spaniards on sight. They had arrived in the realm of Jalisco, suffering brutally underneath the occupation of Guzman. The three men that did survive were eventually captured by servants of Guzman, who also claimed the wreck of the ship. The survivors of the Mendoza expedition were interrogated and would have had to explain their situation to Guzman's lieutenants in such a way that they wouldn't get executed. Uh, that's some real pressure. I mean, 
So if they did mutiny, that's not the story they're going to tell. No, but it is the story that has come down to us through history. So we'll have to, to a degree, take the word for it. But we're, we're smart people, so we can also go ahead and try to read between the lines here. Their story is that Hurtado, understanding that rations and morale were low, ordered one ship to return to New Spain while he would continue to explore north. But, like I said, Hurtado, his ship, his crew were never seen again. Oof, this must be so embarrassing for Cortez. Do you think, you know, getting lost at sea runs in his family? The second attempt to explore and just blows up in his face and, and, and Cortez has to hear about it from the same jerk who was sent to New Spain specifically to get in his way. Uh, who, who now, by, by the way, also claimed uh, the wreck of the ship Cortez just built. You know, it's fine, it's fine, whatever. They were, you know, there's two of four ships that Cortez had building. He's got more in him. So in 1533, the very next year, Cortez outfitted the remaining ships and sent them on a rescue mission to search for Cousin Diego. This rescue mission would be led by another Diego, Diego de Becerra, and piloted by the charismatic Basque cosmographer Fortun Jimenez. Becerra's instructions were to go in quest of Hurtado, but if he should not fall in with him, he was to steer an adventure for the main ocean and search of islands and new countries. For it was said that there were many islands in the South Sea which produced immense quantities of pearls. The chief pilot, Jimenez, was so confident of the good success of this expedition that he promised the men on board he would steer them to countries where they would all become rich. And many there were who firmly believed what he said, Bernal Diaz. Ah, this sounds positive. Pearls. What a find! Uh, I, I want to believe that this voyage will at least reach California or, you know, accomplish something. After only two days out at sea, the two ships were separated in the storm. The smaller vessel returned to Acapulco. The other ship, with Becerra and Jimenez aboard, continued northeast. Unfortunately for his men, Becerra was a harsh taskmaster, and the mostly bass crew you know, just happened to get along with the pilot, Fortune Jimenez, a lot better. Uh-oh, I can see where this is going. The crew, under the sway of Jimenez, murdered Captain Becerra and charted a new course, west, and came upon a bay, which they interpreted to be on an island. An island? So they thought. Jimenez, at the head of 20 men, made for the strange shore in a smaller vessel to collect fresh water. And that is how the first Europeans set foot on the Baja California Peninsula. Ah, <laughs> so that's it. Fortune Jimenez, the mutineer, the murderer, first white guy in California. That's right. Then he and every one of the men who went with him were attacked and executed by the peoples of Baja California. Ho oh. It gets worse. The mutineers, the rest of them on the ship, they watched their friends and leader butchered on the shore and they were denied an opportunity to collect fresh water. They decided to cut their losses and return to New Spain, but they were forced to make port in Jalisco. Which is held by Guzman. Ah, Cortez, is, he's just, he's treading water, he's, but he's, he's gonna drown, he's sinking, he's getting nowhere. No ships have been lost, but I mean, a mutiny, dude, Bernal Diaz hear about this? Uh, what's his take? Now he wasn't there, but you know, thankfully for us, he recorded the story. Jimenez came to an island where, according to all accounts, there were fine pearl fisheries. 
This island was inhabited by a savage tribe of Indians, and they massacred Jimenez, with the whole of the men who had accompanied him on shore to take in fresh water. The few sailors who had remained on board put back with the vessel to the harbor of Jalisco, where they related all that had taken place and spread a vast account of the large population and the rich pearl fisheries of the island they had discovered. These accounts soon reached Mexico, and as may be imagined, were anything but pleasing to Cortez. I like how with each failed expedition, the Spanish gained just, you know, a little bit more knowledge about what's out there and, and their expectations of what's possible uh, to find in California. So, you know, we go from like these white Amazons to American Indians, from gold to pearls. This third failure must have driven Cortez up a wall. The first time Cortez, you know, he pulls a big stunt like this and he invades Mexico, everything worked out more or less. He put himself into deep debt, rolled the dice, and it paid off. Not so with this South Seas venture. Uh, Cortez, he still wants to believe that there is a chance for another big score. That's what's keeping him locked in this competition with Guzman. Oof, there's this image forming in my mind of this egomaniac Cortez, the, the conquest junkie bro, and, and good for the Californians, you know, they're protecting their people. Screw these trespassing Spaniards whom, it's safe to assume, had no intention of treating the people with they met with equality. Uh, so it's Fortunate Menes and his crew that named the Bay California? Not yet, but we're getting close. Cortez is uh, undeterred, or maybe even obsessed, and preparing yet another expedition in 1535, this time with three ships, which would be led by the middle-aged conquistador himself. As soon as it was known in New Spain that Cortez was going to head the expedition in person, no one any longer doubted of its good success, and of the riches it would produce those who joined it. And so many cavaliers, musketeers, and crossbowmen offered their services that their numbers soon amounted to above 380 men, among whom were 30 married men, accompanied by their wives. Wow, this is really, uh, this, this is quite lavish. Uh, even after all these failures, there's there's still such maybe an an aura of success that that might you know strike Cortez. Bernal's maybe hamming it up. Not as far as I can tell. You know, Cortez is the living legend of his age. He is the man who brought New Spain into being. Now, even though he's older, you know, maybe a little grayer. The figure of Cortez still looms large in Mexico. So what's up with this crew? Uh, there's 30 women on this voyage, and then we got all these musketeers. Uh, what, what about the composition of the seaworthy gang? The presence of women, I think, says a lot about the expectations for this expedition. Cortez felt confident enough that he could protect and provide for at least 30 individuals who wouldn't be expected to involve themselves in combat. Amongst the soldiers was the veteran Juan Garrido, the black Portuguese conquistador who had served with Cortez in the conquest. Cortez also brought with him two priests, a royal scribe, surgeons, a pharmacist with a fully stocked pharmacy, a blacksmith, carpenters, and all the equipment necessary to construct a workshop and forge. Wow, an entire pharmacy. Uh, and the inclusion of women definitely implies some kind of expectation of stability and, and the possibility of births. 
and the creation of families and and uh, wherever he lands it looks like Cortez plans on sticking around for a while. Fernand Cortez crossed the sea which now bears his name and arrived in the very same spot where Fortun Jimenez had beached the previous year. Wait. Yeah, right. Uh, how did he know it was the exact same spot? Because the bones of Jimenez and company, picked clean by beach scavengers, were still lying in the sands where they fell. Ooh, haunting. It's very Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Dude, this whole thing has been very Pirates of the Caribbean. After getting all personnel, gear, and animals off the boats, Cortez, the Marquis of the Valley of Oaxaca, gathered everyone around him for a bit of political theater. Cortez performed, by legal obligation, this ritual that's a mix of medieval legalism and Catholic theology where he reads out to the air an official act of possession, which is exactly what it sounds like, the official act of claiming something that doesn't belong to you. As a symbol and act of said possession, the Marquis gave as a name to the said part of the bay, the port and bay of Santa Cruz, and he walked back and forth across said land from one part to the other, and with his sword struck certain trees which were there, and ordered the men who were there that they accept him as governor for his majesty of those said lands. And he made other acts of possession. Royal scribe Martin de Castro. Very interesting ritual, this blending of symbolic action and legal language. Uh, but I don't understand. Name, it's Santa Cruz, not California. Not California. No, not some half-made-up name from an adventure romance. Cortez was a government official, and he was participating in a long tradition of naming things, things which already had names, after the Catholic feast day on which the Spanish first espied the thing. Boo. So, when was this? California was first sighted on May 1st, and landfall was made on the 3rd, the feast day of the Holy Cross. Ah, May 3rd, Holy Cross Day. Well, what's the connection? It was on that day, May 3rd, that the Roman Emperor Constantine, who would later be the first emperor to convert to Christianity, had his dream in which he saw his armies conquering under the Christian banner, the Cairo symbol. Ah, very, very charged symbolism for May 3rd. Uh, I mean, it's just not another Saint's Day kind of king, I own this thing. It's it's harking back to when Christianity is first militarized. Uh, these Spaniards and then the Africans, the indigenous slaves, uh, were they all able to come together to create a colony? Is, is Santa Cruz a place in Baja California today? After so much failure, it maybe looks like Cortez's luck just might be turning around. But no, this is not the case. The bay where the Spanish landed is now La Paz, so Cortez's name didn't even stick. Things started going poorly for the colony almost immediately. Of the more than 400 individuals associated with the expedition, Cortez was only able to bring about 130 adults and 40 horses with him in the first trip. Two of the three ships sailed back to New Spain to retrieve the rest of the supplies and colonists, but a series of misfortunes prevented either ship from returning to resupply the colony at Santa Cruz. No one comes? I, I, I can't imagine that. I, 
okay, uh, I can understand, though, you know, it takes a while, uh, you know, I've done the trip, you know, it takes some time to cross the Vermilion Sea, and then a few days more, and then, and then we're waiting, and then we're waiting, and, and we're getting hungry, because there's less and less food, and then, and then we're, we're waiting just a tiny bit longer, and, and then we're grappling with the fear, is no one coming back? Are we forgotten? Did, did they ditch us? We've been ditched. For those who don't know, the Baja California Peninsula, where you'll find La Paz, can be an extremely inhospitable environment. It is arid and mountainous. The summer heat regularly sits above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The inhabitants of the southern peninsula, like the Perakyu and Guayacura peoples, had adapted their culture over the course of millennia to survive in the demanding terrain. The Spanish party, however, depended entirely on imported resources, which soon ran out. In that country, there is nothing to eat. Neither corn nor any other grain. Only some peach-like fruit found in thorny trees. And certain parts of plants similar to lentils. The latter are hulled, ground, and eaten. But all that a person can gather in a day is not enough to feed him because so little is got out of them. This is no good. They, they, they have one more ship though, right? They, they, can, they can call in quits, they, they can evacuate. Cortez acknowledged that the situation was desperate, but he was unwilling to abandon the colony entirely. His pride was on the line. So he took the carpenters, the sailors, about 50 men total, backed on the boat, and sailed back across the California Gulf to resupply. He then sailed back to Santa Cruz with two ships, but only one of the vessels was able to reach the bay due to a fierce storm. Cortez arrives with only half of his expected cargo. I, I, and wait, wait, how, how did the colonists, how did they fare in the meantime? In this short time, maybe about 75 people were left alone in the territory of the Petacu people in the unmerciful summer sun dehydrated, sunburnt, and hungry. After they ran out of foodstuffs, they would have had to butcher their horses. Starvation set in, and 23 of the colonists died before Cortez was able to return. 23 dead from starvation. That's, that's like a quarter of the Spaniards at Santa Cruz. What, what were they thinking? The provisions that Cortez was able to bring they would not be given to someone suffering from starvation today. His emergency rations were hard biscuits and salted meat. Oh, oh, oh. I'm, I'm starving, and, and, and I've been eating less than a handful of these weird lentil beans, and I, I'm, I'm basically eating nothing. Then, then you, just, you just dive into this all-you-can-eat salted meat fiesta. I, that sounds really rough on a stomach after starvation. Bernal Diaz relates to us that the survivors were so malnourished and ate so ravenously that they soon became violently ill. The diarrhea that they suffered was so bad that half of the survivors left over, some 20 additional people, died after Cortez's return. Oh, that's awful. I, 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 I think we should have a moment of silence for the people who died from diarrhea on this expedition. Just imagine 
what it looked like, what it smelled like in the middle of the, the heat of the summer. The, think, think about that. Just, oh, the smell, the, the, the sustenance that you were just given after starvation, and then it's just like evacuating your body so violently and, and, and painfully that you, you fear for your life. Uh, because everyone around you, the people you survived with up until now, people you thought were going to make it, they are dying. You are dying. You are dead from uncontrollable defecation. And it's everywhere. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going Sad. unnecessarily Ooh. deep into this caca catastrophe. But, uh, I mean, the, the Spanish, they, they, they must think that Santa Cruz is an island that's cursed. Uh, the, the, this can't be California. The, the, there's no gold, and there's no Amazons, and all the ships they sent, they're either lost or mutinied. The Santa Cruz settlement, which was probably little more than a camp with a burial ground at this point, was reorganized. Over the course of the next year, Cortez nourished the survivors back to health and organized parties to chart the coast and the interior. With this information, Cortez, or possibly the scribe Martin de Castro, was able to draw up the first map of Baja California. Well, that's a, that's a great discovery, but Cortez just, you know, spent an entire year eating salted meat, found no cities, no gold, no hope for compensation. What's wrong with him? Why didn't he just, like, turn back after the people were all diarrheaing everywhere and to death? Cortez himself was in very bad health about this time and he would gladly have returned to New Spain, but he feared the slanderous tongues of his enemies, who would be sure to make their observations respecting the large sums of money he expended and the discovery of countries which held out no advantage. But they are! Not only is this an embarrassing deflation of myth of Cortez, his great conqueror, he's this, you know, master of exploration, it's, it's, it must have been financially devastating, spending the last of your conquest gold on the fruitless expedition. Cortez spends all his money, briefly reappearing to, to resupply and spend more money, and then no one hears from him for a year after he left for the mystery island from which no one returns. Ooh, it could be so sinister. He could be a cannibal, eating everybody. No one would know. No one would care. It wouldn't matter. After no one had heard from him for about a year, Cortez's second wife, the wealthy Doña Juana, hired Captain Francisco de Ulloa to find out if her husband was indeed still alive. Cortez was one of the most famous men in New Spain, and his absence was of national interest. So people talked about it. Yeah, sure, it's an it's interesting mystery. It's the subject of gossip. He went off to explore the sea where people disappear. Or die of diarrhea. An awful place. Ulloa and Cortez were eventually able to meet in Baja California, and Cortez returned to Acapulco in 1537. On this personal California venture, Cortez spent the better part of two years of his life. Ulloa and 30 other poor souls, on the other hand, were ordered by Cortez to remain and occupy the colony at Santa Cruz, the awful little camp surrounded by graves. They were also not resupplied. They stayed for more or less a year before they too gave up and returned to New Spain. Just waiting to starve or be killed by indigenous people so, you know, Cortez can have his colony. Were there any Europeans in California or Santa Cruz uh, otherwise after Ulloa left? No. 
This would be the last attempt to place a European settlement in California for a very long time. Events in the wider world drew away the attention of Cortes, but only briefly. In 1536, the return of conquistador Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca ignited interest in the northern frontier in Mexico City. Cabeza de Vaca, having survived the bungled Narvaez expedition to conquer Florida, had been traveling through what is now Texas, Chihuahua, and western Sonora on foot for eight years. The tale of his travels circulated in Mexico City and would eventually reach the ears of Cortes. Western Sonora. So, so that's eastern shore of the Gulf of California, right? Uh, do, do, do Guzman or Cortes, they still consider this their turf? Both do. Because it's still open for conquest, it's still a potential prize to be fought over. Guzman had been sending slaving parties out into the area, so we can certainly say that he was acting like he owned the place. The return of Cabeza de Vaca brought Cortez's attention back to the west. So in 1539, Cortez recruited Francisco de Ulloa, his rescuer and manager of the Santa Cruz colony, for yet another voyage to explore and chart the Gulf. Did Cortez and Ulloa join forces in like a uh, super expedition crew? Unfortunately not. Cortez had to stay in Mexico to finally deal with the legal and financial obligations he had spent years avoiding. Ulloa sailed with three ships, one of which would be lost in a storm in the course of their journey. One of Ulloa's first stops was the site of the Santa Cruz colony. He found these structures left by the Spanish at the settlement totally wrecked. I don't know how the people of California can express any clearer that they don't care for the Spanish to be around. The first guy, Fortune Jimenez, he's killed on the beach, his body is left on the beach, and if that wasn't a sign enough, the campsite is wrecked. They, they won't even take the warning sign. It's pretty clear, guys. You're not welcome here. And I don't think that Ulloa's attempts at communicating with the Californians were particularly conductive either. Essentially, his men would storm into a camp and start grabbing the things they wanted. Now, if a group of strange armed men came into your home and started grabbing at your things, friendly trade relations may not be the first thing on your mind. The Spanish mariners were not able to make any serious connections. Ulloa left Santa Cruz and sailed back to the eastern coast of the Gulf, then northwards up the Gulf for 700 miles. 700 miles? Yeah, Baja California, fun fact, is the second longest peninsula in the world. Ulloa continued northwards, but found his way frustrated by sandbars and a strong southern current. Where was he? Without realizing it, Ulloa had entered the Colorado River Delta. Whoa, what do you... What do you mean without realizing? The Colorado River Delta is incredibly wide and shallow. In some areas along the coast, the difference between high and low tide might be two to three kilometers. In the extreme distance, it may have been difficult to distinguish if he had reached a river or a strait. We all hypothesized that he had reached a delta and that the landmass on the opposing coast was a peninsula but he lacked the resources to explore the area by land. So, he followed the Baja California coast southwards. Until? Until October 29th, 1539, when Ulloa rounded what is now Cabo San Lucas, the extreme southern tip of the peninsula, and met the Pacific Ocean head on. In that winter, Ulloa made three attempts to push north of what is now known as Point Eugenia, but was pushed back by fierce storms each time. The mariners with Ulloa gave Point Eugenia, the westernmost point in Baja, the name Cabo Angafio, which means Cape Deceit. 
hit the seat, which makes sense after three attempts and three failures. How uplifting. After rounding nearby Cedros Island, they headed back to Acapulco. After such a long voyage, a good number of Oyoa's men began to suffer from scurvy. There had been no ports in California to resupply at. The mariners would have been lethargic and increasingly more likely to make mistakes or injure themselves. So Oyoa did this. He reorganized his men and had the sickest board a ship that needed the least repairs, and he sent them on ahead to Acapulco. He gave them the best chance to survive and make it home. Oyoa stayed behind with a group of the healthiest men to make repairs on the second ship before they too returned to New Spain in the summer of 1540. What a hero! Sending the sick off first in the best boat. Nice guy, what a mensch! Did he get a fat reward from Cortez for saving the entire crew? No. The aim of the voyage was to explore in order to find new lands and resources to exploit. Oyoa did none of the above, which means, once again, Cortez had failed to recoup his investments. Yeah, but it's a great discovery! Oyoa's the first guy to sail the whole coast! I mean, that's 1,400 miles! But there's no profit. Not even Bernal Diaz was impressed. In going and coming, he spent seven months in his voyage without accomplishing anything worthy of record, as far as I know, and he returned to the port of Jalisco. Just a few days after Yoa landed, when he was taking a little repose, a soldier who had accompanied him on the voyage laid in wait for him and killed him, and that is the end of all the voyages and discoveries the Marquis undertook. That's it? You know, Diaz, he's only human. Uh, he's freely admitted in his writings that he wrote from memory in second-hand accounts, so some details are probably, you know, intentionally or otherwise, misremembered. Oyoa's ships are recorded by some sources as returning to Acapulco and not Jalisco, contrary to Diaz. A Francisco de Oyoa would be mentioned in legal documents from Spain years after Diaz believed him to have been murdered, but this would be it for Cortez. He's kaput? His resources were finally spent. Cortez could no longer afford to pay what he owed. He couldn't even pay some of the men that sailed with Oyoa. In an attempt to evade his creditors and regain his fortunes, Cortes returned to Spain in 1541 to seek an audience with King Carlos. I did not know that Cortes could just go see the king like that. He can't. You don't do that. He shows up in Toledo, the royal capital, but can't get an audience. It's not like in New Spain. There's an insurmountable number of bureaucrats and court officials between Cortes and the monarch. For Cortes, who let's call a man of action, to be physically close to his objective, but separated by just arbitrary ritual and, and yes man and policy, yada yada yada, it must have been so frustrating. It sets him off. There is a famous anecdote recorded about Cortez, wherein uh, there's this huge crowd that has gathered around the carriage of the king, who's, who's not only the king of Spain, he's also the Holy Roman Emperor. He controls a vast amount of territory. He's probably the most powerful man in Europe at this time. So you can imagine people you know, mobbing this carriage, trying to get a good look at the emperor, because he's a celebrity. Proto-paparazzi. There's all types of people pushing and shouting, commoners, petitioners, the king's hanger-ons, the king's bodyguards, and in this crowd is Cortez, the man who once held the fate of empires in his hands. Now he's just one voice among many trying to get the king's attention. So he forces his way through this crowd to the carriage and he plants his foot on the carriage's doorstep 
halting his progress. Nobody does that. This boldness so alarms and upsets the Emperor that he deigns to speak to Cortez. He's actually met him before, but I don't think he remembers. And he asks him something like, Who are you to halt my way? I am a man who has given you more provinces than your ancestors left you cities. Cortez to Carlos V. That is good. That's like dirty, hairy. That, that's in your face. Did he really say that? Anecdotally, if he did, the sneering remark granted him no favors. The king sent Cortes to fight against the Ottoman corsair, Kair al-Din Barbarossa, in North Africa. Ah, North Africa. That harks back to the topic we discussed in our first installment. Some 50 years after the Reconquista, the conflict between Christian Spain and Islamic North Africa remains unresolved. Cortez's assault on the Ottoman fleet was a failure. His ships wreck in a storm, and Cortez himself was nearly drowned. He next appears in the historical record several years later, arguing with the royal treasurer over compensation for these efforts. Disgusted with his affairs in Spain, Cortez resolved to return to his estate in the Valley of Oaxaca. En route to find a ship which would carry him to the Americas, Cortez was struck with a sudden awful illness. Ooh, illness? Like uh, the first case of Montezuma's revenge? Oh, could be. Maybe a virus or chest infection? We don't know. We know that he suffered from awful diarrhea, a fever, and chest pains. This may have been accompanied by pain in the joints and a shortness of breath. In this painful way, Hernán Cortés, conqueror of Mexico, died on December 2nd, 1547, at 62 years of age. That is an awful way to go. And Cortez, he earned it. He obviously did invent war and, you know, didn't bring it to the Americas, but he was the white guy we pin it all on. These Spanish conquistadors did not have good intentions. Their behavior in the Caribbean, the slaughter of villages, the sexual violence and enslavement, it's the worst humanity has to offer. I think any other European captain would have done the same. So, uh, you know, does Bernal Diaz have anything to say about the death of his commander? Or, you know, did he even outlive Cortez? In New Spain, and on his first return to Castile, Cortez was uncommonly generous. But on his second return thither in the year 1540, he was considered very miserly. If we consider his life after the conquest of New Spain, we shall find that it was full of troubles and sorrows. The armaments which he fitted out cost him immense sums of money, which he never derived any advantage. His expedition to California proved very unsatisfactory. May the Almighty pardon his sins, and mine also, and may he also grant me a happy death for this is of more importance than all our conquests and victories over the Indians. Troubles and sorrows. Way to sum it up, Bernal. I, I'm, I'm having mixed feelings about Bernal Diaz. He, he's, he's been, you know, kind of down-to-earth reference for the historical world, which no longer exists, but it's also kind of from second-hand accounts and just hearsay. He, he means well, but he's biased. Bernal Diaz writes like just a fly on the wall, but 
we know that he's a conquistador and he's also a kind of a player in these events and also the events that he takes part in there's really no sense of his writing of you know him actually being a main character no but that was also important to him he wanted to write uh, for everyone else's story that just makes him even more of an idiosyncratic character and unlike his contemporaries interesting narrative form definitely feeling a bit of the renaissance Bernal Diaz del Castillo did outlive Cortez and most of the other men that he went to Mexico with. He lived to complete his account of the conquest of New Spain, but did not see it formally published in his lifetime. After the invasion of Mexico, Diaz del Castillo was appointed governor of the Maya city of Ishmiche, where he would settle and spend the rest of his days. Lastly, I mention myself, for I made two voyages of discovery to New Spain previous to going out with Cortez. I cannot sufficiently thank and praise God and the Blessed Virgin for having shielded me in all the battles and saved me from falling into the hands of the Indians, who at that time sacrificed all prisoners to their abominable idols. To heaven, I must also offer up my thanks for giving me power to describe our heroic deeds and to publish to the world the names of all of the brave officers and soldiers who conquered New Spain and not that all the honor, glory, and our merit in the conquest might be given to one officer alone. Vaya con Dios. Adios, Brunel. Dylan, this is the last time I'm going to ask you this. We need to get to the bottom of when California was named California. Are you ready? Yes. The exact person and date who named California is... Unknown. What? Isn't that unsatisfying? Yes! Uh, you said that by following the career of Cortez, we'd get to the naming of California. We have. We're here. Ah, I don't see it. Because it hasn't been in the written records. <sighs> but Bernal Diaz mentioned California. Yeah, but Bernal Diaz lived to be 95 and wrote his account when he was in his 70s well after Cortez's voyages and after the name had been popularized. 95? Uh, he, he would have been, like, one of the oldest guys in the world when he died. Yeah, 95, like a wizard. He's probably, like, the last living participant of the Spanish invasions before he died. Must have been all that salted meat. He would have been one of the last people alive to have seen Mexico City in its zenith. What a memory to treasure. Man, I mean... No wonder he could only reach to fantasy to describe what he saw. I, I, I can picture a, an very, very old Bernal Diaz, you know, realizing that, huh, I'm the last surviving guy who went out there with Cortez. I, I gotta set the record straight. But we can't read Diaz del Castillo's words as an accurate representation of what people were calling the Baja Peninsula in the 1540s. But it is a starting point. The true history of the conquest of New Spain was completed in 1568. So, we know that within 30 years of being named Santa Cruz, Diaz was able to name drop California and expect his audience to understand that he was referring to the same landmass. And, because Diaz also mentions the romance Amadis de Gaula, he expects his readers to be familiar with the fictional island of California. So we know that California is a popular name by the mid-16th century, 
What's the first map of California? Can we find the word California written on there? The very first map of California was found among Cortez's legal paperwork in Spain. The western coast of Mexico is fairly accurately charted. So is the southern end of the Bay of La Paz. But the word California is missing. Cortez referred to the area as the country of Santa Cruz. So strike that theory. What about Eoa's expedition? Ulloa's own account of his exploration of the Gulf was only rediscovered in the 20th century. He does not use the word California. California does appear in the account of Ulloa's voyage written by the sailor Preciado. Okay, we're getting somewhere. But the only version of Preciado's account available is an English translation of an Italian translation of the original, also written decades later. So scratch that. But in that English translation, Cortez's land of Santa Cruz is specifically identified with the name California. Okay, maybe I've been probing about this all wrong. When was the word California first recorded in Spanish to refer to the landmass we know and love? 1542, without any explanation of why that name was applied. 1542? Wait, what? Let's, let's do the math here. So we have a six-year window between Cortez arriving in Santa Cruz and the official name and the application of California, the name of the fantastic Black Amazonian Island. How does that even happen, though? I mean, th th something gets named, and, and it was very much an official document kind of thing. Cortez did the act of possession. You know, he walked around, knocked some stuff with a stick, and, and, and that was that was all recorded. So, so why didn't Santa Cruz stick? Why isn't this making any sense? I don't know. Somehow, between Cortez's arrival in what is now La Paz, and his return to Spain, California did become the popular name. Santa Cruz was used on maps for a while, but like we said, California eventually surplanted that name and became popular in the second half of the 16th century. But why? I don't know. The California the Spanish invaders wanted to find was a land of easy riches. Rumors of an island of women must have resonated with an audience who were familiar with the fantasy California of Amadis de Gaula. The California found by Jimenez and Cortez had less to do with their fantasies of women and wealth and more in common with Queen Calafia's rocky island of California, a place inhospitable for invaders. So the answer who named California is we don't know. We don't know. We're probably never going to find out. The prevailing theory among historians, and historians rarely get this colorful, is that uh, someone who was familiar with Cortez's failure and before 1542 called the failed venture California as a sardonic joke, and the name stuck. <laughs> so, some California this is. I, I guess that works. That's that's pretty cynical remark. Cortez, your discovery, it's a joke. But I I'm I'm not quite I'm not really quite satisfied. That's that's it. Our state is named for a mean joke. But think about Oyoa's sailors naming Cape Deceit. California seems like their type of humor. Now, we've wandered into the metaphorical tall grass of history. We've only so many pieces of evidence which have survived to reach us in the 21st century, and we're just not going to be able to see this puzzle any clearer. California was named between 1535 and 1542 by an unnamed person with a grim sense of humor. So we'll just sit with that?
with the mystery. The mystery. Zach, I do have one solid naming date for you. Hit me. It was Ayoa who named the Gulf of California the Vermilion Sea in 1540. Thanks. <laughs>